This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the topic for today's Dharma talk is simply being. And today is the 20th of June, 2021. <clears throat> I'm going to start by reading out a couple of my favorite stories from the Mumenkan collection of koans known as the uh, the gateless barrier and this particular uh, translation is by a contemporary chan teacher called guagu who lives in miami florida and uh, the uh, the collection of uh, koans in the uh, in the mumenkan or the gateless barrier it's one of my favorite koan collections and i think it's the most accessible uh, and this particular translation and commentary by Guagu um, kind of fits a lot with ordinary minds and practice because he he continually brings the koans back to our um, everyday lives. So the first story, uh, and most of you will be familiar with these two stories because they're both very famous stories. So the first story from case 19 called Ordinary Mind is the Path. And like most koans, it's a, a conversation between um, two, two monks. <clears throat> one being the, the master and one being the student at that particular time. So when Chow Chow asked Nanquin, what is the way? Nanquin said, the ordinary mind is the way. Chow Chu said, can one strive for it or not? And Nam Kwan said, when you strive for it, it recedes. Chow Chu said, if we don't try, how do we know it is the way? Nam Kwan said, the way is not something known or not known. Knowing is false perception. Not knowing is just being oblivious. If you truly arrived on the way that is free from doubt, you would realize that it is vast like open space, through and through. How is it possible to impose affirmation and denial? At these words, Chao Chu was suddenly awakened. And uh, women's poem, women is the guy who collected the koans, he always puts a little poem with the stories. The poem is, in spring there are hundreds of flowers, in autumn there is the moon, in summer there are cool breezes, in winter there is snow. If there were no hang-ups with triviality, such would be the most splendid season. 
So just a couple of questions for you to ponder from that first story. When the, uh, the monk is asking, what is the way? That's a very similar question to what is Buddha? And um, so when Chaochu said, can one strive for it or not? And Nanquan said, when you strive for it, it recedes. What is, what is Nanquan pointing to there? The, the familiar place that we as students or aspirants are usually in at one one moment or another, what is the place that the student starts from usually? Um, what is the, the student in this story asking for? What is, what is the student doing? When he says, can one strive for it or not? Or what is the way even? Those kind of questions when we say, what is Buddha? What is the way? You know, he's saying, teach me, but what is the way? Uh, can I strive for it? What is that about, generally speaking? Grasping, um, well, trying to grasp something, for sure, yeah. It's, it's um, when, when we commonly go on our spiritual journey, what are we, what are we normally doing? What are we usually called? Called? Yeah, that's, that's from the Buddhist tradition. But just thinking more generally about how um, people usually talk about this. As Assuming that we haven't already done it. Yeah. Well, you're, getting, you're, getting, you're, getting, you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, yeah, the search, the seeking mind, the seeking mind. Um, so... Um, so what this is pointing to is um, is what does the student need to let go of the, the seeking mind, the searching mind. But you know the the um, the paradox is, of course, um, if we don't seek, we won't find. Even if, even if we find, means then you know, finding is about giving up the search. Uh, but like there's that paradox involved in it. As long as we're searching for something, of course, we're always coming from the place that we haven't got it. So we're wanting to get it and we haven't got it. So that's the search. Why is it that it cannot be known? So the it that we're all searching for, why is it not able to be known? In this particular context, they're using knowing something in the sense in which we would know an object um, um, or even a thought. You know, so like you know, we can know how to fix a car if we if, we, if we're mechanically inclined, or we might know how to uh, do our arithmetic. Um, we might know how to you know cook a good meal. These are things we can know. Right? Um, but this particular it that we're searching for in Zen. It's not that kind of knowing. 
And uh, when he says the way is not something that is, that is not known, he's, he's not talking about a not knowing mind. Uh, he's talking about why is it that most people are so oblivious to it? So why are we oblivious to it? And when we say it, in terms of this story, we're talking about ordinary mind. Those two words, ordinary mind, is pointing to something because all our words point to something that uh, we're seeking. Um, so obviously the words ordinary mind are not it, but they're just pointing to something. And uh, there's lots of different names for it. And ordinary mind being one of them. Ordinary mind's nice, a nice name for it because it's pointing to something. Ordinary is pointing to something. And so one could say, well, why is it, are we so oblivious to it? Well, because it's so ordinary. It's uh, so obvious and so easily missed. Um, so, um, you know, what this is pointing to with ordinary mind is not those kinds of Kensho or Satori experiences that one read about in our younger days, but um, it's just something much more that's, present right now and, uh, and when he says vast like open space um, if you truly arrive on the way that is free from doubt you would realize that it is vast like open space so space is often a metaphor that is used um, to point to this again and um, and so is vastness, so boundlessness. You look at the uh, uh, um, an empty room and there's furniture in the room, and uh, you describe what's in the room, and we might describe the the furniture in the room or the color of the sunlight in the room, the people in the room. But we tend to forget the space in the room. And even though there's walls and a ceiling, the space is not contained by the walls or the ceiling. Like the walls and the ceiling are contained by the space. And so if you imagine the space going onwards, it's boundless, it's fast, it has no limits. You know, it has no location. Like um, it's not located here and it's not located where Roger is, or Michael is, or uh, Richard is. Sorry, Richard, I called you Roger. And, uh, or where Tom is. It's not located there. It's not located here. It's located, it has no location as such. Um, the location is within it. So no matter where we are located, it's there. And in a sense, it's timeless as well. So it's not like it doesn't happen at nine o'clock or eight o'clock here always and the poem I what's the poem pointing to I'll just read it to you again in spring there are hundreds of flowers autumn there is the moon summer there are cool breezes winter there is snow and then the, the, the next line is if there were no hang-ups with triviality such would be the most splendid season. So what are the two, what's the, what's the poem pointing to? 
So the first, the first four lines, the first four seasons are pointing to. Let's come right. Just the simplicity of in some other of flowers. The moon in winter. Yeah, um, it's just pointing to what is. It's just, um, it's just like you know the the usual um, metaphor of the mind as a mirror. Well, the flowers appear in summer, and the moon appears in autumn. In winter, there's snow. Um, so it's 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 always justice, right? The seasons are often that kind of metaphor. Yeah, we can talk about impermanence as well, but this is not this is not so much about impermanence. This is more about what is always the case, really. Um, uh, in a sense, what you know, water is uh, always wet. Um, so the, the next line when it talks about and this is translated differently in different translations, but no, if there were no hang-ups with triviality, such would be the most splendid season. So what's that suggesting? I mean, if, if the seasons that are being described, we could say that it's pointing to the extraordinary, and it's another way of talking about it, because uh, the ordinary is extraordinary, the flowers are extraordinary, the moon's extraordinary, if we just stop and pay attention and be present to it, right? So what does the, if there were no hang-ups with triviality, what's that pointing to? Yeah, whether we call it hang-ups, um, reactivity, vexation, wanting things to be a certain way, how we notice how we, we we're by, and um, our practice is mainly, we, we need to pay attention to both. We need to pay attention to the flowers and the moon, just what is, the sunlight coming through. And being aware of what the ordinary mind is pointing to. And we also need to be aware of when we get disconnected from that throughout the day. When we get caught up in our, in, in a sense, in that separation from or, or disconnection from that non separateness of, I'm not separate from the moon or the flowers or the, um, just this. When we start to argue with reality in some way, or struggle with it in some way, that's the disconnection. We need to pay attention to both of those. How we find our home and how we get disconnected from our home. Can I just point out that there are no adjectives until splendid right at the end. So he doesn't say splendid flowers or splendid stuff, and he says splendid season right at the end. So it's not, he doesn't find, it's not the object just, just as it is. It's the, what it really is. Yeah, yeah. So Larry's making the point uh, that um, there's only a, 
the, the adjective splendid comes in the last sentence of the poem. Such would be the most splendid season, which, which, is, point, which is pointing to not any particularity, but pointing to the, the splendid within all appearances, yeah. or the suchness of all appearances. Now, I just want to go to the second story, which is intimately connected to the first one. I mean, most of the, the koans are all uh, intimately connected to each other. So but this, this, this is another one of my favorite ones, which most of you have heard before. Uh, case 41, um, where body dharma pacifies the mind. So, uh, a Bodhidharma sat facing a wall. The second ancestral master stood in the snow and cut off his arm, saying, Your disciple's mind is not at peace. Please, teacher, pacify my mind. And Bodhidharma said, Bring out your mind and I'll pacify it for you. And the second ancestor replied, when I search for my mind, it cannot be found. At that point, Oridama said, I have already pacified it. And the poem, coming from the West, that's Bodhidharma coming from the West, he directly points to this. An affair initiated by an entrustment. So the entrustment is this notion of transmission, the notion that the first ancestor of Zen or Chan, Bodhidharma, passes this on to the second ancestor. Disturbing and stirring up the Chan forest is, after all, you. So in this particular story, you know, Bodhidharma as a very old man had come to China from India and was uh, bringing this extraordinary Zen teaching to the um, to China, and uh, there was already Buddhism in China at the time, and apparently, according to the the legend, he set up shop near the Shaolin Temple. And uh, because he was, you know, he, he wasn't kindly accepted, he set up himself up in, as the legend has it, in a cave where he lived for a number of years facing the wall. Now, in, in Soto Zen practice, uh, meditators literally sit facing the wall. Um, but you can take the wall as a metaphor as well. So... Um, you can be sitting facing the wall, whether you're sitting facing a literal wall or sitting facing a metaphorical wall. Um, so like if you're sitting facing a white wall, what is it actually you're sitting facing? And uh, is there any barrier between subject and object? I mean, what does a wall or a white wall, what's the metaphor there? And what does the second ancestor need to let go of 
in order to realize its inherent peace of mind. Like in most, most traditions, peace of mind, like happiness or freedom, these are the kind of words we point to as to what this quest is all about. So, um, as in the first story, this, this particular guy who was the second ancestor, apparently in his previous life, he'd, uh, well, in, in that particular life, he'd been a, a warrior, a soldier, and killed many people. And uh, he was still greatly disturbed by and feeling guilt. One could read maybe into that, that uh, he's, you know, his mind is very disturbed and he's seeking peace of mind. And um, so he's seeking again, right? So he's caught up in this seeking mind. And, um, and so uh, Bodhidharma says, well, bring me your mind and, uh, and I will uh, put it to rest for you. I will pacify it for you. So we can sort of assume that he goes off and spends a, a, quite a long time sort of searching for his mind. <laughs> you could say searching for his true self. And um, he comes back and says, Master, I've, I've searched and searched and searched and I cannot find it. And then it's, oh, ah, there you are. And so, you know, the second answer has his, re has his realization. Um, so, again, what are we pointing to in the poem? Bodhidharma coming to, from the West directly points to this. What is the ordinary mind pointing to? And we could say our true nature. We could say our true nature is inherently at peace, freedom. But these are all words. So, you know, the words are important. But ultimately, you have to taste that for yourself. You know, it's like no matter how great a poet I am and how much I describe what a, how, how beautiful a strawberry is and to your taste are, well, some strawberries are not that nice these days, but when you have a real genuine strawberry that's grown organically, whatever, no matter how well I describe that, it's not going to be the same as tasting the strawberry. So this is why Cham and all non-dual traditions really are about, you know, it's uh, going beyond the concepts, beyond words. Uh, but words and concepts point to stuff. Uh, in the same way that gestures can point or, you know, lots of things can point to this. That's why there's so much art in Zen as well. Art's all pointing to this too. And uh, when he goes at the end of the poem, disturbing and staring at the Chan forest is, after all, you. Again, who is the you that we're pointing to? All, you know, all great religions have these non-dual traditions within them. So in Hinduism, you know, you have Avaita Vedanta uh, and you have uh, Kashmir Shaivism. Um, and then in, in Buddhism, you have Chan or Zen. Uh, uh, and you have Mahamudra, Dzogchen in the Tibetan tradition. These are all often referred to as direct paths. In other words, rather than the progressive path where we... Uh, have this notion of training and cultivating 
till we arrive at a certain realization someplace in the future. The direct path traditions are always pointing to right now. In other words, they start at the end rather than beginning. And the, 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 the sense in which we can realize where we, the, at the end, where we always are, which is always pointing to that. And again, we can simplify that and just say the simply being just now. And the basically two methods that you find in all these non-dual traditions, one is, one is meditation. So in our practice, just sitting. Just sitting is a really effective teaching. We are expressing ordinary mind when we are just sitting. We are, we are expressing simply being, we're simply sitting. There's uh, nowhere to go, no one to be. Uh, yet we are embodying and expressing and performing what all these stories are pointing to. It's not separate from who we are. And um, all these traditions have some kind of version that, you know, we are, like Gareth was pointing to, we are inherently enlightened already. So we can go straight to that. Um, and the inquiry practice in different traditions um, is, you know, in Zen and, and other, other traditions, it's usually about asking questions such as, you know, who am I or who is hearing? What is this? And actually using a kind of question like that as a means to contemplate. So when you, what, who is the one that is hearing or what is the one that is hearing? Or like I was saying before, what is the I that is hearing? The impersonal I, the I am. Not the Andrew I, but the I am I. Similarly, you know, there is only one Buddha mind. My Buddha mind is your Buddha mind. We all share the one Buddha mind or the one ordinary mind. So whose mind is that? Can you stop being your Buddha mind? No, your Buddha mind's always here. So what disconnects us from the Buddha mind? Come back to in a minute. Perhaps another good question is, there's two, I think two fundamental methods. The first one is to actually, and I started to emphasize this one first and the, and the other one, the next one second. I think the first step is really to recognize ordinary mind, to recognize and become familiar with this, this witnessing, this presencing, this awareness that we are right now, which requires no effort. Only The only effort it requires is to recognize it. And we recognize that it's something which is always here, no matter we just wake up in the morning, it's here. It's probably there when we go to sleep at night as well. So no matter where we are, it's always here, it's always present. 
it has no color, it has no location, it has no form as such, but the form is appearing in it all the time. And all we have to do is recognize that sense of peace which resides in that, it, the unperturbability which resides just in that simple awareness or presence. Because it's contentless, it's not a thing, it's not an object. It can't be seen, it can't be touched, because that's all what appears within it, what arises within it. You can't actually see the seer in that sense, or hear the hearer. So we never lose this mind, but we forget it or we get disconnected from it. We forget it because it's so obvious and nobody ever talks to us about it. That's why in all the great traditions, there are always those stories about you know, the rich person wandering among the poor because they don't recognize the treasure that's within. So this is the treasure that all these stories are pointing to. So we miss it because it's so obvious. And... Um, and within it, there's, it has no lack. There's no need within it. It's just this. But we get disconnected also through our vexations or emotional reactions. So we get pulled out of it and get back into duality, back into this shouldn't be this, or I'd rather this be something else. In other words, how we get pulled out of this because we get caught up in our self-centered self, self-centered self mind, our emotional reactivity. So, but we can't, it really helps to recognize the self-centered self and the, the reactivity by becoming really familiar with this peace that's always who we are. When we can recognize that peace, then we, we start to see more clearly throughout the day when we get disconnected from it. Then we can find our way back to it a lot quicker. We don't get lost for such a long period of time. This particular understanding is not just in Zen. It's, it's in the Tibetan tradition as well. This is, a, this is a book called The Mind of Mahamudra, which is translated by and introduced by a guy called Peter Roberts. And I'll just read you how you'll find ordinary mind in the Tibetan tradition as well. So Mahamudra in Tibetan, literally means the great seal. And masters of this tradition have explained it to mean that everything is sealed with Buddhahood, the intrinsic true nature which is already perfect. Therefore, there is nothing to be added or to be removed from the mind. There is no liberation to be attained other than that what is already present. A common saying is that the reason why Mahamudra is not attained is not because it is too difficult, but because it is too easy, not because it is too far, but because it is too close, and not because it is hidden, but because it is too evident. Therefore, the Mahamudra tradition employs the phrase ordinary mind to express that enlightenment is nothing other than the mind that we already have. Joker Beck also talks about it. So in Joko's book, Everyday Zen, if you go to the chapter on the observing self, 
starts with a quote. I don't know where this particular story comes from because it's not referenced, but the, the chapter starts with, um, who is there, asks God. It is I. Go away, God says. Later, dot, dot, dot. Who is there, asks God. It is thou. Enter, replies God. So in this particular conversation with God, the first I is the personal I, and the thou is the impersonal I. And um, in this particular chapter, she talks about the observer or the witness, and you'd all be familiar with that. Um, so in Zen practice, how we practice the observing self, and we observe that aspects of ourself, our thinking mind, our emotions, our functioning self, all of those that can be described and observed. But as Joko points out though, the observer itself cannot be found, the same as in the story. And the observer cannot be described. And if you look for it, there is nothing there. So we can't get, so Joko says, we can't get upset if we are observing because the observer never gets upset. That's because nothing can't get upset. And this is our natural state when the ego is absent. So we are already free. It's only our fixations and how things should or shouldn't be that prevents us from realizing the freedom that we essentially are. Freedom, happiness, peacefulness, these are all names for our true nature. And, um, and, it, and, it's, and it's just to finish, it's, it's a couple of points. It's, it's interesting to distinguish what we might call the temporary happiness from what this is pointing to, the piece that this is pointing to. So, so temporary happiness is like when um, we feel fulfilled in some way. We may have had a goal that we've achieved or an object that we wanted to possess, that we've now possessed, um, something that gives us that sense of temporary relief because we've finally got that which we wanted to get. And uh, it could be simply, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a sporting context, you want to win or you want your team to win and you have that sense of elation that lasts for, you know, it could last for a few seconds or a few minutes or a few days, but eventually that sense of elation passes. So, but those temporary experiences of happiness, when we get what we were desiring or hoping to get, it kind of like give us a taste of of what this is pointing to. But it's not it's not the the kind of peace that this is pointing to. Um, and uh, so we often mistake those temporary forms of happiness for the happiness that is our true being. And um, so those temporary forms of happiness, which give us some sense of relief from attachment and aversion, are really like just taking a drug and getting a high. It's a cause and effect situation. You've got what you wanted and you feel happy. But then that wears away, that disappears. Peace of mind, nowhere to go, no one to be. Simply being is enough. But that doesn't seem to be enough for a lot of people. Um, and that's why it's often simply not recognized because to see the extraordinary in the, in the ordinary is to see this right now and recognize it 
So last fortnight we were discussing taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. So today we're talking about taking refuge, if you like, in Buddha mind or ordinary mind, which is just resting peacefully in your ordinary mind. So as often as you can throughout the day, just stop and notice this and rest in this. Become familiar with this. And then you'll recognize more quickly when you get disconnected from this and taken away from it.